Welcome to LFPL's At the Library series, an ongoing podcast featuring author talks, programs, and events at the Louisville Free Public Library. For more information about upcoming events, visit us online at www.lfpl.org forward slash upcoming events Thank you for coming out during your lunch hour. I really appreciate you being here. I'm Bonnie Feldkamp. I'm the opinion editor at the Courier Journal, and we are presenting this in partnership with the library, which did all the heavy lifting with this beautiful space. And um, we are really excited to have you here. We are going to start off with the event with um, Marilyn Harris. I'm just going to read here, Director, Office of Housing and Community Development, and Emily Liu, the Director of Office and of Planning. And we thought it would be best to start off the event before we bring um, Leah Rothstein, Rothstein up, I apologize, to talk about her new book. Maybe we should hear from our city and see exactly what the plans are for happening and what we're doing here. And then we can talk about what we can learn from that, grow from that, and onward with Leah. So I'm going to hand it over to you, both of you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Emily Liu with Office of Planning. So glad to see you all. And uh, so the first book is The Color of the Wall. I remember uh, when our office first got a copy, everybody wanted to read it. I do not have enough. So I have to buy a second copy. <laughs> so there's one person, uh, I don't think he's here, Joe Docs, but he needs a book just by himself. So I bought him one. And I'm so glad a follow-up book just published this year, Just Action. So I would like to talk a little bit about what our office has been doing, Office of Planning, over the last three or four years about this very subject. Um, and then uh, Marilyn will uh, introduce the new uh, housing plan that Louisville, you probably all read in the newspaper. So just like The Color of Law, the just action, laid out the research background, laid out the facts and documentation about the facts that in the United States, the government played a role in contributing to the segregation and acknowledge that fact and then um, have a roadmap of what you can do about it. So in Louisville, I'm going to present in the same kind of sequence so about three and four years ago, our office started doing some research and documentation. A lot of the history I, as a director, actually did not know at the time. So our staff, our staff took the time, go to the library, go to the archive, find a lot of information. The first step is documentation and research. And we did find exactly uh, in Louisville happens similar across the country, of course. And we acknowledge that history by creating a storybook. Um, if you visit our website, um, Louisville Office of Planning, you'll find a story map called Confronting Racism in City Planning and Zoning. It's all documented, not only documentation, but also acknowledge the history. I think it's very important to acknowledge that history before you do something about it. So the third step is do something about it. So that's kind of the three part I would like to talk a little bit. So back in 1914, Louisville, the state of government, created an ordinance called Racial Segregation Ordinance, basically saying um, if you are a people of color, you are not allowed to purchase or even rent a home on a street that predominantly white and vice versa. So that was, Louisville is not the only city, there's several cities across the country, including Dallas, uh, had that ordinance. But um, the, there's a lawsuit, so uh, in 1917, there's a lawsuit about it. Eventually, that lawsuit went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court overturned that, um, that ordinance. So, it's no longer, of course, after 17. However, that overturn is not based on 
the racial segregation based on the 14th Amendment, basically the right to purchase the property right. Uh, but anyway, right after that, uh, what become more prevalent is deed restrictions. So the government are no longer can uh, blatantly put racial segregation ordinance format. So the private entity has been um, doing a lot of deed restrictions. Unfortunately, they are very, very effective. A typical deed restriction will say, in this neighborhood, um, the homeowners are not allowed to sell or lease a property to people of color. Um, in one of the neighborhoods in West Louisville, actually used to be a predominant white neighborhood, Westover, it, it went even further in saying, if the corporation is owned by African-Americans, you cannot buy a housing unit in this neighborhood. Um, of course, everybody uh, um, knows about redlining, what happened in Louisville, and what happened across the country. But not just that, is urban renewal always very, very devastatingly um, destruct a lot of African-American business. The Walnut Street in downtown Louisville that used to be a vibrant, historic, um, African-American business district. All of that has been destroyed as part of the urban renewal. It's still a lot of the land there. If you can see just right now, it's called Muhammad Ali Boulevard. A lot of sites still weakened parking lot, some weakened buildings. Um, and also starting in the 1960s, um, Louisville, it has zoning in place in the 30, but cities have a lot, the entire city and county is zoned somewhat uh, residential. But 75% of the land, even today, are zoned single family. Single family only up until two years ago. You cannot even put a granny flat in these areas. So these are only for single family detached homes. 75% of the land today still zoned single family. It's very exclusionary. So I'm not talking about just one law, one policy, one regulation that contribute these segregation. It's a compound, the layers after layers after layers of policies, regulation that contributed to the segregation, contribute to the uh, wealth gap, as well as the, the uh, disparity of uh, health outcomes. We all know certain neighborhood, the life expectancy are much lower than certain area of the city. So that's kind of the documentation we find. We documented in the uh, story map. Uh, there's a lot more. My profession, the profession I love, the planning profession, always historically has been part of the, you know, the, zone, the zoning, the law, all of that. But certain part of the time frame, the profession also contribute to this segregation. Early year, we have some planners. Um, we hired from out of state, have done some plans and zoning. Uh, we find that some of those are very uh, discriminatory as well. So today, the zoning is very uh, uh, exclusionary. Um, we're not saying it's, um, but it's very excluding in a way that a certain area are off to even duplex, triplex, or fourplex. Uh, luckily, two years ago, three years ago actually, City of Louis started the zoning reform work focused on equity. Uh, our office worked closely with Metro Council, with the mayor's office, with support from some of the citizens and uh, organizations. I saw a former uh, <laughs> Metro Council member, Nicole George, who really helped us as well. Uh, getting the phase one of the zoning reform. So it's very important we do something about it. So the action was starting the zoning reform in the summer of 2020. Um, we, at the time, is a social justice movement. Also, we have in the middle of the COVID, so we had to be very cre creative in terms of public engagement. We set up hotlines. We uh, have meetings in the parks. Uh, we also are doing a lot of virtual meetings. So we got a lot of feedback from citizens. Um, it's down to three different areas. One is housing. There are definitely any, uh, a lot of things about housing that's not equitable in the law, and we need to do something about it. 
and also environmental justice area. That's another area. The third one is about the process, um, the, how difficult it is to navigate our zoning ordinance. So those are the three ones. So we focused on um, some easy solutions at the time. So I come up with 46 different items. Six of them we call low-hanging fruits. And I'm showing three in here, but six of them. The first one is accessory dwelling unit. So up until two years ago, if you want to build granny flat, uh, granny flat, we call it accessory dwelling unit, granny dwelling or granny flat, uh, mother-in-law suite as we call it, you cannot even do it by right. You have to go through this lengthy public hearing, takes months, all the neighbors uh, are notified, and a lot of time just like, you know, I cannot afford to go through the process. I don't want to go through. So the, the outcome is we have very few accessory dwelling units being built each year in Louisville because the process is really difficult. So uh, we have a public engagement upfront about this at the time. We want to see what citizens think about this. We got a tremendous support. Of course, we also got a lot of pushback on this too. But we're trying to address some of the concerns upfront. So there are some concerns we just put in there. So after all the public engagement, we drafted the ordinance and sent it to Metro Council. Metro Council adopted two years ago. It became effective after Metro Council passed 23 to 3. It's a very good uh, vote for, for something like this. So that's the first step. And now the accessory dwelling unit is in place. Uh, we have seen the application increase tenfold because it's much easier for you to build something for your mother. Right? Stay together. You don't have to drive 15 minutes or 30 minutes to visit your mother. Maybe uh, that's, or for me, <laughs> it's my grown children. Grown children always ran out of money, have come back, <laughs> stayed out ADUs. <laughs> I'm glad I have an ADU um, that was built a long time ago. Uh, it's very helpful to keep this family. Every time you have a family living in the ADU, that means you free up a house unit somewhere else for some, somebody else too. So that's very important, whether for your own family or you can rent it out as income. Just last week, have you followed the news? Last week, the federal, federal government changed its policy on this one, saying the Federal Housing Administration will allow you to count your income from that ADU towards your mortgage. Think about that, how expensive it is to own a home here. A lot of people probably can't do it by themselves. For young people trying to uh, own something, they may need help, and that additional income from an ADU can help you qualify for a mortgage. So that's last week. It was very exciting. The second part we did, a part of the phase one reform, is we notify renters. Uh, in the past, when you have a public hearing, you've had an important uh, meeting in downtown, planning office, planning um, commission, a board of zoning adjustment, we only notify the owner. That owner could live in California maybe have a property here, probably do not care as much. So the change is we uh, notified the, not only the owner, the owner will continue to be notified, but also the renters in the surrounding area. And also we removed a floor area ratio, means how much building can you build on a certain site. Uh, we reduced the setback from 30 feet to 15 feet. We also legalized urban agriculture. Those are just no-brainers. And even duplex, uh, in the past, even though you are zoned multifamily, because your lot is small, your lot is less than 5,000 square feet. 5,000 square feet is actually a large area. You cannot even build a duplex. This uh, phase one, the law passes, allow you to build duplex in multifamily, regardless of the size of the lot. And that's kind of uh, free up 10,000 parcels. 10,000 parcels in Louisville are zoned multifamily because they are smaller than 5,000 square feet. They were not allowed to build duplex, but now they are allowed. And there are a few other things. Uh, the daycare is part of this as well. In the past, daycare are not allowed, even with a conditional use permit, in the single-family zoning district. That has changed uh, last year, so we're glad about that. Um, and this is just a beginning. I just want to zoning reform is a massive task. It's a lot of work. We just started out three years ago. We're making some progress, but there's a lot more to be done. Just to let you know, currently our office is working on middle housing. A lot of people are probably aware of that. Middle housing means duplex, triplex, fourplex. Those are the housing units or housing type that was allowed by right prior to the zoning, like older neighborhood, old Louisville. 
um, in the Cherokee, some Cherokee Triangle, um, in Clifton, some of those, you see those uh, duplex. They look like a house. They're not like humongous. They look like house, house scale, uh, middle housing. So we're working on that. We've been doing engagement for about two years, and we're expect to have some draft by the end of the year. And I was hoping that you will uh, learn more about that and be able to help us and support us. That's something we are gradually working towards uh, making the housing accessible in everywhere in Louisville, making housing choices available to all people. So that's one of the goals. I'm so glad you are here. I'm going to have my business account here. I would like to talk to you a little bit more. Look like you're interested in the housing subject in general, at least. I'd like to talk to a little bit more, see what you can do to help the city. I mean, housing right now, just not Louisville, across the country, we're in a crisis mode right now. Everybody can do something about it. If you can just open up your neighborhood for ADUs, middle housing, or if you just show up at the meeting to support the work we do, you have done something for Louisville. Okay, with that, I'm gonna turn over to the housing director, Marilyn. Hi. You guys can hear me in this? Okay, good. So um, we're gonna talk just briefly about the housing plan because you guys are really here to see Leah, right? Um, and so let me just tell you a little bit about what the city of Louisville is currently doing. Um, about two weeks ago, we released My Louisville Home, which is our plan on how we are going to um, develop and preserve 15,000 units of, of affordable housing for um, the citizens of Louisville. And so we're gonna do that through various strategies. And those strategies include revising our land development code, working on that. And so, as Emily stated, they've already started working on that. We've been working on that for a couple years. We're also going to increase funding and expansion of the Louisville Affordable Housing Trust Fund. Um, the Housing Trust Fund has done over 5,100 units since its inception, but in the last two years alone, it has received more than 60% of its funding. And so we need to keep that going. We need to make sure we keep funding the Affordable Housing Trust Fund so they can do their work. We're gonna implement in, um, innovative funding techniques and construction methods. Um, and so we're gonna tap into things that we haven't tapped into as a city before. Um, and we are going to continue to make sure that we um, fund single family home ownership. My Louisville home is not just about multifamily housing. It is about every housing type, single family, duplexes, triplexes, quads, smaller buildings, 16 units, 24 units, but also larger units because we have a large percentage of people in our community um, who are either unhoused or housing burdened. And so we need to do something about that. And then we are going to, as a city, start to incentivize the renovation of vacant land and abandoned properties. And so we're gonna work with our land bank and our vacant and abandoned properties team to make sure we get those lots and those properties back into the hands of people that can bring them back into useful life. So um, we want to create 15,000 units. Many of you know that was the mayor's commitment during the campaign was to create or preserve 15,000 units of affordable housing. And so we are going to do that. Um, we are working very diligently to do that. That is a huge task. That is a huge task. I, I can't say that enough. Um, but. As we go about doing that, we are going to look at accessing Faircloth Durad, which is a private financing mechanism. It's not used a lot. There's only been about five cities in the country right now that have actually done those. But in the city of Louisville, we have 1,927 units that used to be public housing that are no longer, they're not there anymore. And so we are going to try and bring those back under the public housing umbrella but through private financing. It's a very creative way to do it. We are gonna to continue to advocate for the state's affordable housing tax credit. Um, I'm going to kind of go through these fairly quickly. We're looking at modular housing. There's no way we can stick build 1,500 units in the next four and a half years, three and a half years. It just, it's not possible. Um, and so um, we are also going to establish a green bank, which will make um, the development of green infrastructure and green building techniques less risky. So we're gonna work on doing that. Um, again, we're going to continue to provide assistance for down payment and closing costs, but we're also going to support our community land trust, 
we are, which um, is launching the, the first community land trust in the city will be launching in the next maybe 60 days. And there is a second one that will launch sometime next year. We're going to continue to support those. And we're going to support a shared equity model. Um, so um, the renovation of VAPS, um, how many of you have driven down a street and seen a, a boarded up or abandoned house, right? They're, they're there. And so we want to get rid of those. And so what we want to do is we want to take those properties, we want to sell them to somebody, and we want to get them back into useful life. And we are even going down the road of the city getting a general contractor to renovate them and then selling them. So we're, we're looking at all options to get property back into the hands of citizens. Um, so the land development code revisions, again, as Emily said, allow more housing by right. And the other thing that we want to do is expedite the approval process. So Emily's staff is really digging into seeing where we have some things that we could tighten up, some things that we could make go faster. Um, and so we are going to work to do that. Um, we do want your thoughts on the My Louisville Home. We are taking public comments through November the 3rd. You can go to like WWKY, Louisville, whatever. It's just easier to go to the Google search bar and type in My Louisville Home and it will come up. It is the first thing that comes up. Please go out, take a look at it, read it. It is the way that we are going to tackle our homelessness and our lack of housing in this community. And so with that, I want to turn it over to Lee. All right, we're going to turn it over to Lee. Um, and we are so excited you are here. Thank you so much. You mic, so I, I think I'm mic'd up. Thank you. All right, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for being here, spending your lunch break or midday. And thank you, Marilyn and Emily, for all of that information. It's really exciting. There's a lot. Uh, it seems like maybe you've read the book already. <laughs> already started implementing a lot of the ideas in the book. And thank you, Bonnie, for the intro and organizing this. So I'm going to start out. Uh, you heard some of the background and history of Louisville's uh, segregation and the policies that created it. I'm going to give some more context um, just on a national scale. It obviously happened locally here. Um, so to start with how we came to be a segregated society and then move into some of the ideas from Just Action about what we can do about it. So I'm going to start with this concept of de facto segregation. De facto segregation is an idea that I'm sure many of us have heard about. I know what little I learned about residential segregation in high school was maybe one sentence that was a definition of what de facto segregation is. And the de facto segregation idea says that the segregation of our neighborhoods, the racial segregation of our neighborhoods, is unlike the segregation that existed in the South of lunch counters and buses and schools, which was required by law that instead the segregation of our neighborhoods was de facto. So it was uh, something that just happened by accident, that we like to live around people who look like us, and so that's why we sort of self-sort into same-race neighborhoods. Or it was a result of private actors, uh, maybe bigoted landlords or realtors or mortgage brokers or insurance companies who refused to sell or rent or give mortgages to African-Americans to buy homes in white communities. And we look around and we see every metropolitan area across the country is racially segregated, blacks living apart from whites, and we think it's too bad, but there's not much we can do about it because something that happened by accident can only unhappen by accident. It doesn't give us much agency or ideas or uh, a role to play in challenging it. Now this is a pervasive idea all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, Chief Justice John Roberts has written in opinions that the federal government had no role to play in creating segregated communities, so it has no role to play in undoing that segregation. Very pervasive idea. So in 2017, my dad, Richard Rothstein, wrote The Color of Law. The whole premise of that book was to debunk this myth of uh, de facto segregation. So he argued that, sure, there were private actors, uh, bigoted landlords and realtors and mortgage brokers, who helped to create and sustain segregation, but their actions were incentivized and often explicitly and intentionally required by the government um, to create and maintain racially segregated communities. So these are government actions, local government actions, like you saw 
um, from Emily's presentation, state actions, federal actions that ensured that blacks and whites would live apart from each other and remain in those segregated communities. So once we see that, we can see that our government, especially our federal government, violated the Constitution in creating these uh, segregated communities, discriminating by race in the sale and rental of housing, a violation of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution. Now, the call to action in the color of law was that once we recognize this unconstitutional actions by our government, we can see that we have an obligation to do something about it, to remedy and reverse those actions, because when our government breaks a law, we then try to fix it. And that's our obligation as residents, as citizens of this country, to do that. But nobody's really stepped up on a grand scale to remedy the racial segregation of our country. The segregation of blacks and whites is as, as large as it was um, in the 60s when the, Fa the Fair Housing Act was passed, which abolished um, or made illegal the racial discrimination in the sale and rental of housing. So it hasn't changed much. We haven't really done much on a national scale to challenge this. So I'll give one example um, that was discussed a little bit earlier but how the about how the federal government instituted this apartheid society that we live in where we're segregated by race and some neighborhoods have more resources than others and that's also um, determined by the, race of the racial makeup of those neighborhoods. So after World War II, there were millions of war veterans that came home from the war and they started families uh, we had the baby boom. Those families were met with a housing shortage because there wasn't a lot of housing built during the war, and prior to that, not a lot of housing built during the Great Depression. So the federal government decided to step in and try to meet that housing demand by helping create suburbs and subdivisions outside of the urban core, all, uh, cities all across the country. We weren't a suburban economy at the time. Most people lived in urban centers because that's where work was. That's where factories were and the businesses that supported those factories. They had to be near rail lines and ports. So people were concentrated in urban cores. And the federal government decided to change the, the way we lived and create, help to create suburbs and subdivisions outside of these urban areas. So one famous example of this that you've maybe heard of it's an example that we talk about a lot, but it's not unlike how subdivisions and suburbs were created all over the country, um, is Levittown outside of New York City. So Levittown was built um, around this time by a builder named William Levitt. He wanted to build 17,000 homes for working families in New York who couldn't find houses to live in. And he didn't have the money to build 17,000 homes. He couldn't get a bank loan to build them because it seemed very speculative slightly crazy, people didn't live in suburbs, he didn't have 17,000 buyers lined up. The only way he could build Levittown, and the only way builders like him all across the country could build their suburbs was with federally backed loan guarantees, so federal subsidies to help him finance the building of those 17,000 homes. Now written into the manual of the federal government, uh, it said that in order to provide these federal loan guarantees to builders like William Levitt, the builders had to agree to put restrictions on the deeds of the homes they built that ensured that the homes would only ever be sold or occupied by whites. This was written into the Federal Housing Administration Manual. It was explicit, it was intentional. It went even farther to say that the federal government wouldn't help subsidize subdivisions that were located anywhere near where African Americans lived because, and I quote, in the manual it said it would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. So the, the examples of this go on and on, but this is just one example of many that fill up the color of law to show that this idea that the government had no role to play in creating segregation is just nonsense. The federal government especially had every role to play in intentionally creating these communities to be um, accessible only to white families, these new suburban communities, and then limiting African Americans to living in the urban cores that were then divested of resources and investments. So when, when Levittown was built and suburbs like it, homes in those developments were affordable to working families. They cost about $100,000 in today's money. That's an affordable home for a family with one or two wage earners. Um, and, and those families, the white families who bought the homes, if they were veterans, they could get a VA loan with no down payment required. 
Um, if they weren't, they could get a Federal Housing Administration loan with a low down payment requirement. So the, these subdivisions, they were subsidized on the builder level and then on the home buyer level by the federal government for whites. Um, and those white families that bought those homes, those homes no longer sell for $100,000. They sell for two, three, four, five, six, higher, uh, uh, 600,000, up to a million, couple million in some suburbs. Um, and those families who, the white families who were allowed and, and assisted by the federal government to buy those homes, they didn't expect buying those homes to be uh, a path to getting rich and accumulating wealth. They just needed a home. But that's what it was. The families accumulated wealth through the appreciation of the values of their homes. Those families could then use that wealth to send their kids to college or enjoy their retirements. Uh, most importantly, to bequeath that wealth to their kids and grandkids to help them buy homes. This was wealth, again, subsidized by the federal government for white families, African-American families explicitly prohibited from building wealth in the same way. So that's why today we have the wealth gap that we have between blacks and whites. So there's an income gap where the average um, household income of African-Americans is about 60% of the average household income of whites. Um, this is an issue that should be the subject, if it isn't already, of another book and another talk. A lot we can do about that. But you would think that the wealth gap would be about the same as the income gap. You make about the same amount of money, you can save about the same amount of money. But because of this intergenerational wealth building of home ownership for whites, the average household income for African-American households is about 5% of white households. So that, that disparity, that huge gap, is due almost entirely to these policies in the mid-20th century that subsidized whites into home ownership and prohibited African-Americans from accumulating wealth in the same way. And so now we have the Fair Housing Act that was passed in 1968. It says we can't discriminate in the sale and rental of housing by race. But it's sort of an empty promise, you know, for an African-American working-class family wanting to buy a home in Levittown, for example, they might have the income to qualify for the mortgage, but they don't have likely that intergenerational wealth that a white family is more likely to have to be able to afford the down payment and to be able to afford that home. So even though discrimination is outlawed because of these ongoing consequences of the policies that created segregation, we're, we're, we don't live in an equitable society and, and segregation continues to persist. So the wealth gap is one of those ongoing consequences of the policies that created segregation. There's many more. Like I said, when we talk about racial segregation, we're not just talking about a benign sort of separation of people where some people live here and some people live here and everything else is equal. Um, instead, we're also talking about a separation of resources. White communities, communities where whites were subsidized to live, became areas that are called high opportunity areas, areas of more investment, um, higher resource schools, uh, more open space, uh, cleaner air. And, and areas where African Americans were limited to living were divested of resources, so less well-resourced public schools, um, more overcrowded living arrangements, fewer public services, uh, closer to to industries that spewed pollutants and freeways and homes with lead paint. So all of these disparities lead to uh, and underlie many of our most serious social problems and racial disparities today. So we heard earlier briefly that these, the neighborhoods that we grow up in determine our life outcomes. So because of the segregation of our neighborhoods, we see disparities between children who grow up in segregated African-American neighborhoods versus children who grow up in segregated white neighborhoods, there's disparities in their educational outcomes, how much they earn over their lifetime, and, and how healthy they are. So children who grow up in segregated African-American neighborhoods have higher cancer rates, higher rates of cardiovascular disease, shorter life expectancies than children who grow up in segregated white neighborhoods. So this is, it not only determines the quality of your life, but how long you live. It's, it's not, um, it's not a thing that's just going to go away. It continues to um, impact our lives um, and will continue to until we do, do something about it. So The Color of Law was a popular book. It was surprisingly popular. It, um, a lot of people read it as a result and as a result of all of the things that have happened um, around racial justice in the last several years. 
Um, there's sort of less currency to this idea of de facto segregation. Um, we, in some senses, have a better understanding, a better reckoning with the true history of how we got to be a segregated society. What's happening here in Louisville, looking at all of the historical policies that created segregation, it's happening in a lot of cities all across the country. So that's great, but um, it doesn't necessarily tell us what we can do about it now. It's really important to understand the history and to understand that, that we have an obligation to do something about it, but how do we live up to that obligation? Well, we wrote Just Action to help answer that question. Um, and we wrote it to people like you, residents of your community who care about the equality uh, between you and your neighbors and want to make a more equitable community and redress these harmful policies of the past, help us to figure out what we can do about that in our own communities. Now, we argue that to do this, to live up to our obligation to redress segregation nationally, we need a reactivated, re-energized civil rights movement all across the country that's taking on these issues. Um, it might seem like we're somewhat on our way to that, or more maybe than in past decades. We had a racial reckoning in 2020 after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. 20 million people all across the country marched in Black Lives Matter demonstrations. It's more people than have marched in uh, demonstrations for racial equity than any time in our country's history. These were people who were black and white and young and old, urban, suburban, uh, rural demonstrations as well. It seemed like there was new energy around these issues and, and new uh, energy and desire to do something about it. But those 20 million people, many of them went home, some put lawn signs on their front lawns, some started book clubs and discussion groups, some went back to their companies that then hired diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, which they've probably since fired, and, and, and they issued letters to their stakeholders denouncing racism and promising to do better in the future. Now, these are all important things to raise our awareness and make sure that the conversation is ongoing in our communities and our companies, but they don't, in and of themselves, the lawn signs and book clubs and letters to shareholders actually make any, any concrete change in how our communities are made up. And, and so um, that's why we need local groups working on these issues, advocating for change. And we argue that these groups should be focusing on local issues. That sure, we're going to need massive interventions and policy change on the federal level to really redress segregation all across the country. But we certainly don't have the political will in the federal government right now to do that. We can hardly have a government right now. So we can't sort of wait for that to happen. Um, but we can create that political will on the local level. And even though the federal government played a major role in creating segregation, once it was created, it, to a large extent, it's maintained and sustained by local policies. Much like you've heard, the policies that are being changed here to challenge segregation are those policies that sustain and maintain it. So if we want to challenge segregation, we can do that locally by advocating for change in the local, on the local level. To do that, we need to start to build groups locally that can advocate for this kind of change. Now, we argue that these groups need to be biracial and multi-ethnic. They need to have leadership that's both black and white and includes all races and ethnicities because that's the only way we're actually going to build the kind of movement we need to make these changes. Now, we also understand that that can seem daunting. Um, we live in segregated communities, if you haven't gotten that point yet. And so there's not, um, you know, so, a lot of people outside of the workplace don't have natural social contact with people of other races to be able to start building these social networks and social capital that they can then use to advocate for change in their local governments. But that, that doesn't mean that it's impossible. Um, in Just Action, we give a few examples of communities that have taken some extra sort of intentional steps to bring people together from, uh, from different races, from segregated parts of town, to just start to get to know each other and build social relationships that they could then use to start advocating for change. So it's not impossible, even though it might seem hard. That's sort of another theme of this talk. <laughs> this all is a hard work, but it's not impossible. Um, so once these groups are formed, they often start by learning about the history, like the, the project happening here in Louisville. Understanding the policies that created segregation is important for activating and, and um, understanding what we can do to undo it. Because again, once we see that intentional action created segregation, we can start to see that intentional action can undo it. We don't 
no longer see it as an accident that's only going to fix itself. We can see that we have a role to play in fixing it. So then um, our book, Just Action, it describes dozens and dozens of policies and strategies that local groups can advocate for to help to challenge and redress segregation. Many are happening here already, but I'm speaking to you as residents of your communities so you can help ensure that these kinds of changes that are happening in the city government are accepted in your neighborhoods, are supported, and that you come out and, and help make sure that these changes are enacted and, and more. And I'll give some examples that some touch on what, what's already happening and some add to it. So when we talk about the redress of segregation, the policies and strategies to redress segregation, I mean two things. Um, one is we want to change the policies and programs that continue to maintain and sustain segregated communities. So we want to ensure that looking forward, we create integrated communities and we challenge the ongoing segregation. We also want to look to the past and ensure that we address the disparities that exist because of segregation. So like the wealth gap I talked about, um, we need to sort of address the causes, that's looking to the future, and the consequences of segregation if we want to truly redress segregation and remedy the harms that our government caused in creating it. So to do that, we talk about um, policies and strategies that mostly fit into two main categories. Um, the first category are those uh, policies and strategies that aim to increase investments and resources in lower-income segregated African-American neighborhoods. This is where the concentration of poverty is the direct result of government-sponsored segregation. So to remedy that government-sponsored segregation and the consequences of that, we want to make those neighborhoods areas of higher investment, more resources, more higher opportunity, as it's called in housing policy language. So more bank branches, more grocery stores, more housing opportunities. And then we also understand that when that happens, often in lower-income neighborhoods, when investments increase, often housing prices rise. Uh, people with higher incomes, whiter people, want to move in. Um, gentrification occurs, and the longtime residents of those communities are forced out. They're priced out of their homes. So these, these strategies to increase investments need to be coupled with strategies that prevent some of that displacement from occurring. So that can be things like controlling how fast rents can increase so that, that tenants aren't forced out of their homes by landlords jacking up the rents so they can get their lower paying tenants out and bring higher paying tenants in. Just cause eviction ordinances. These are all things you could support on the local level. Just cause eviction ordinances um, give landlords only a few reasons. They can only evict tenants for just cause like failure to pay rent, massive property damage. They can't come up with some reason to evict their tenant just so they can get a higher paying tenant in. Um, inclusionary zoning is an important policy where in neighborhoods where new housing development is happening, inclusionary zoning, again adopted through the zoning code by the local government, requires that some of the units in those new developments are reserved as affordable for lower income or moderate income families. And the costs of that is borne by the developer. It's a cost of developing in the city. So that's a way of ensuring that as new, new development happens in a gentrifying community, that some of that new development is accessible to the people who have lived in that community for a long time. Another uh, strategy I'll go into a little more detail on, uh, which sounds like is just getting started here, is a community land trust. So there are over 300 communities, soon to be 301 <laughs> or, or more, um, that have a community land trust around the country. Community land trusts are nonprofit organizations they attempt to uh, create permanently affordable home ownership opportunities while also preventing some displacement that can occur when housing prices are rising in a neighborhood. Those are two big goals, um, so I'll explain how they can do that. <clears throat> I'll explain that through an example we write about in the book, which is, uh, took place in Durham, North Carolina, the Durham Land Trust. It was started when a group of residents of a lower-income neighborhood in Durham near Duke University they started just talking to each other. It was a lower-income, predominantly African-American neighborhood. They started talking to each other about what they could do to improve conditions in their neighborhood. Uh, the first thing that they all agreed on was they wanted the city to turn a vacant lot in their area into a park um, because they didn't have a park and kids were playing in the street and it was dangerous. So they advocated for that and the city uh, uh, agreed. They turned the, the lot into a park and the residents were excited. This group uh, was galvanized and looking around to see what else they could do to help their neighborhood. 
The area was gentrifying at the time because Duke was expanding and investors were buying up homes to get the, you know, to rent and sell the homes to the Duke University community. So this group learned about the land trust model and started one with two vacant homes that were donated by the city of Durham to the land trust. They fixed up those homes and then sold them at affordable prices to lower and moderate income households. They sold them at $100,000 in today's money, that was the price. And they can sell those homes at an affordable price because in the sale, the land trust retains ownership of the land underneath the house. So one of the reasons why housing costs rise so quickly is because land costs are rising very quickly. So when you take the cost of the land out of the equation, just sell the home, it's more affordable. And then the homeowner, they lease the land from the land trust and they own the home like any other homeowner. And then when they want to resell the home, they adhere to a maximum resale price that the land trust establishes based on a formula. Every land trust does it slightly differently, but it's what's called a limited equity arrangement so that the home seller um, is limited in how, how much they could sell the home for. So they can't earn the same equity they could earn if they were selling it for a market price. But in return, the new home buyer gets an affordable price for that home. So that's how they are permanently affordable home ownership opportunities. And they're, they're very successful all across the country. In this community in Durham, the Durham Land Trust now has 300 properties all over the city, rental and for sale properties. Their for sale properties now sell for $150,000, which is obviously slightly more than $100,000. That's because of how that equation works to allow the home sellers to build up some equity in the sales. But the homes in the surrounding neighborhood sell for $500,000 today. So they're far more affordable. And the, the blocks where the land trust was able to acquire homes, uh, most of the residents are still African-American. And the blocks where uh, investors outpaced the land trust, those blocks have gentrified and most of the residents are white. So we can see it's an effective anti-displacement strategy and affordable home ownership strategy. So what can we do with this example here in Louisville? Support the land trusts that are starting. Also advocate, which sounds like it's... Uh, there's a window of opportunity for doing this, that the local government donates some of its vacant land, maybe land in its land bank, to the land trust to create these permanently affordable homeownership opportunities. There's also more we can do beyond the local government, which is the, going back to those restrictive covenants that I talked about that are on the deeds of homes. So those covenants are no longer legally enforceable, but they're part of the legal documentation of the home. And so they remain on the deeds forever. That's why we can still find them and there's a lot of research that communities are doing to document where the restrictive covenants are because they're in the paperwork, the underlying paperwork of every home. Now on those deeds often uh, are named the institutions and companies that were involved with first building that home or that subdivision. That includes the realtor that first helped sell the home, the builder, the developer, often the bank that financed the subdivision. And in, in many cases, those companies are still in business in our communities. Um, we looked at some in Charlottesville as an example, and the, the four that I named, the builder, developer, realtor, bank, they were all either still in business in Charlottesville or had been sold to another company that was still operating in Charlottesville. So a local group organized for the redress of segregation could find those companies by looking at these restrictive covenants and the deeds and go to those companies and tell them, look, you, we see that you help create segregation the segregation of our communities, you have an obligation to do something to remedy the segregation that you contributed to. One way to do that is these companies could support a land trust either financially or by donating land to help land trusts um, expand their portfolios of homes. So that's one example and one category of examples of strategies that we talk about. The other category of strategies that we talk about are um, what are called mobility strategies, or strategies that attempt to open up exclusive, expensive, usually predominantly white, usually suburban communities to more diverse residents. These are communities where things like redlining, where things like single-family-only zoning have ensured that these communities have stayed expensive and predominantly white for decades. And so in order to redress segregation, we want to open up those communities to more diverse residents and help people who've been excluded from those communities buy, buy or rent in those communities in order to diversify them. So we can do that through all of the things you've heard about, zoning changes, to ensure that more housing types are allowed to be built in these exclusive areas so that there's a range of affordability options so that 
not only the most affluent people who are more often white can afford to live in these exclusive areas, but that there's a more a broader range of housing affordability in these neighborhoods. Also, subsidies for, for buying or renting in these areas. Down payment assistance programs are hugely important to address that wealth gap I talked about so that African-American families can buy homes um, without the intergenerational wealth that they lack. So down payment assistance helps address that issue. And building housing in this, these communities, not only for the market rate, sort of very wealthy and government subsidized, very low income, but also middle income housing, which you heard about as well, hugely important to address the need because we have this misconception in this country that all African-Americans are poor. And so if we want to address housing for African-Americans, we need low income, more low-income in housing. So African-Americans are disproportionately poor compared to whites, but most African-Americans are not poor. They're middle-income. And in most communities, there's not a lot of housing that's affordable to middle-income families and households. There's market-rate housing, and there's subsidized low-income housing, but not a lot in the middle. So if we want to truly diversify communities, we have to address the full range of housing needs. So one example I'll go into a little more detail. Um, is, involves the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program. So this is a federally funded program, funded through HUD, the Housing of Urban Development, no, Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, and it's administered by local public housing authorities. Um, it provides a rental subsidy to 2 million low-income families, disproportionately African-American families, to be able to rent units in the private market. So uh, another... I'll just keep giving ideas for the next book and the next talk, but... So this program is hugely underfunded. Only a quarter of households who are eligible for Section 8 actually get a Section 8 voucher. But two million do get Section 8, and so that's a lot of people, and, and we should be concerned with how the program is run to ensure that it works the way it should. So most of us, you know, we want to live in these areas of high opportunity, well-resourced public schools, access to open space, um, retail, jobs, transportation. And the Section 8 program, when it was um, established, uh, was, had the intention and the potential to allow low-income families to live in these kinds of neighborhoods because unlike public housing where the benefit comes tied to a building or a unit, with the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program, you get a voucher to rent anywhere in the private market in the jurisdiction of your housing authority. So it had the potential to allow mobility for Section 8 uh, lower-income tenants. But only 5% of Section 8 tenants use their voucher to rent um, in higher opportunity communities. 5%, that's a very small number. Um, white Section 8 uh, voucher holders are more likely to be able to use their Section 8 voucher to rent in these, in these higher opportunity communities than African Americans. Several reasons for this. One is just discrimination, plain and simple. The discrimination against tenants who use Housing choice vouchers to pay their rent is an allowed form of discrimination by the federal government. Um, but it is many communities, about 100 uh, cities and counties, including Louisville, and uh, 20 states now outlaw this kind of discrimination. It's called source of income discrimination ordinances. Make it illegal to discriminate against tenants because they use Section 8 to pay their rent. So that's great. You have that ordinance here in the city. But passing a law like that is just the first step. I, I looked into the law a bit, and I didn't see much about what the enforcement is or the penalties for breaking that law. So we have to make sure that that, that is, um, I see an article I should read, gotcha. <laughs> um, that uh, we need to make sure that those laws are enforced, that people know about them. Landlords know that they can't discriminate against people using housing choice vouchers. Tenants know that they can't be discriminated against, that it's illegal, and then what to do if they are discriminated against. And it's hard to know. So. Often this work falls to fair housing organizations or local civil rights organizations. Those organizations are often underfunded. They can use our help and our resources as well. Another thing we could do as an organized residents to redress segregation is ensure these organizations have the funds they need to do this important work. Another thing we can do is fair housing organizations find out where discrimination is occurring in housing by sending, often by sending testers. So they'll get volunteers, to pose as potential tenants when a unit is listed as for sale. They're white and black or different races, but they have the same financial backgrounds, the same qualifications. And in this case, some will say they use Section 8 and some don't. And then you can see how they're treated 
Some might be told the unit has already been rented, while others will be shown the unit. That's the only real way we can know where discrimination is occurring. Fair housing centers need volunteers to do this work, so this is something we could individually do, volunteer as a tester to help um, find out where discrimination is occurring in the, in the housing choice voucher program, and then make sure that that uh, anti-discrimination anti ordinance is enforced. That's really important. Another piece um, is the uh, voucher amount itself is an obstacle to lower income Section 8 tenants using their voucher to move to higher opportunity areas. So the way the voucher program works is when you receive a voucher, you pay 30% of your monthly income towards your rent, no matter what your income is, and then the voucher pays the, re the rest of your rent, up to a maximum uh, rental amount or a maximum voucher amount. And that voucher amount is usually set by taking all of the rents from the lowest to highest in a metropolitan region, taking the median or the middle rent, going 10% below that, and that's the maximum voucher amount. So for the entire metropolitan area, the maximum amount is 40% uh, of the median, 10% below the area median <laughs> rent. So by definition, over 60% of the rents in the metropolitan area are too expensive for voucher holders to afford. It's not surprising then that they can't use their voucher to move to higher opportunity, higher cost areas because the program itself is designed to not allow them to do that. So there was a lawsuit about this in 2010 in Dallas that alleged that this payment standard um, caused the segregation and isolation of lower income African American and Hispanic voucher holders into high poverty areas. As a result of the lawsuit, the housing authorities in the Dallas area agreed to adopt a smaller area rent standard where instead of using the median of the entire metro area, they use the median of, of a zip code or a group of zip codes. So in higher cost areas of the metro region, the voucher will pay a higher rent than in lower cost areas. It's logical, it makes sense. Um, and it worked. Uh, the voucher holders in the Dallas region were more able to move to these higher opportunity areas after this change. So then after that, HUD started to require 24 metropolitan areas, and as of yesterday, added 41 more. So now there's 65 uh, metropolitan areas around the country that are required to use these small area rent standards. The Louisville, Louisville metro area, as of yesterday, will be required to use these small area rent standards starting, I think, January 2025. They have to implement it. So that's a great change that will affect uh, voucher holders here immensely, it means that those voucher holders will be able to pay a higher rent in higher cost areas of this region than in lower cost areas, and that's great. So as residents concerned about this issue, we can and, uh, sort of stay in touch with the housing authority, make sure that they implement this change faithfully when it's required in about a year. And the other piece of it is, uh, you know, even, so now Louisville will have all of the pieces in place, an anti-discrimination ordinance, the small area rent standards, but there's still going to be landlords who refuse to rent to voucher holders or who try to get around these rules by finding loopholes in them. And so as residents of our community, we need to ensure that we're monitoring that, that if we know landlords, if we are landlords, that we help dispel some of the myths about Section 8 and ensure that landlords are participating fairly and faithfully in this program and help the housing authority implement these changes so that they can really have an effect when they, when they take place. So those are the two main categories of strategies we talk about in just action. And then I'll just really briefly, we also talk about some, because you make categories and not everything fits in them. <laughs> and so there's a lot of uh, strategies we talk about that sort of span both uh, the lower income segregated and higher income segregated neighborhoods. And a lot of those have to do with increasing home ownership opportunities for African Americans in all types of neighborhoods. So that includes things like the down payment assistance I talked about, homeownership counseling and education, um, subsidies for buying into homes. Banks have the authority from the federal government since the 1970s to provide um, assistance programs like down payment assistance or favorable mortgages targeted by race if they can do a study proving that that race has um, di been disadvantaged by the financial uh, industry in the past. It's not hard to prove that. Banks only recently, only in the last couple of years, have started using this authority. It's called a special purpose credit program. It allows a race-specific remedy for the harms that the financial industry has wrecked on the, on the African-American community. 
So banks should be adopting these programs to provide targeted down payment assistance to African-American households, for example. Washington State just passed a law to, to start the study to be able to provide that kind of down payment assistance to, to those who are excluded from home ownership through their racially restrictive covenants all across the state. It's the first state to adopt such a program. It's exciting. In this time when everybody thinks we can't adopt race-specific policies and remedies, this is an example of a, a state that's doing the opposite and has had success. It passed through the legislature the first time they tried with a huge backing of support from the community. So it's a great um, example we should all be watching. One quick example about the home ownership issue that um, I'm not sure if you all are familiar with, but it's a way that African-Americans are kept out of home ownership that is less obvious than those racially restrictive covenants I talked about and more pertinent to today. So this is the credit scoring system. So we all think of the credit scoring system as an objective rating of your future likelihood of paying a debt, and we think it's an algorithm, it's math, it must be true, and banks use those credit scores to determine if you are credit worthy. If you, and if you have a high enough credit score, you're el you can be eligible for a mortgage, and if your credit score is too low, you won't be able to. So we're told that this system is objective, it's, but in fact, it's an example of a program that is racially neutral on its face, but has a racially disparate impact in effect. And here's why. So the credit scoring system, it takes into account your financial history, to tell like a bank or a credit card company if you're a good candidate for a loan. And because they figure if you've defaulted on a loan in the past, you might be more likely to default in the future. So that makes some sense. But it only factors in a certain type of financial history into determining that credit, credit worthiness. And it's a type of financial history that whites are far more likely to have than African-Americans. And there's some reasons for that. One is that African-American neighborhoods of all socioeconomic ranges have fewer bank branches than, white neighbor, than similar white neighborhoods because financial redlining still occurs and banks don't locate their branches in neighborhoods that are not predominantly white often. Um, now, there's other things we could do about that. There's another chapter on that in the book. But because there's no bank branches in your neighborhood, what are you going to do? You often have to rely on things like um, check cashing or payday lenders. And those types of financial institutions, even if you pay back those debts faithfully with their huge interest rates, that doesn't factor into your credit score because it's a non-traditional financial institution that doesn't count in the credit scoring system. So just by that factor, you, you're, you're dinged in this system. Also, if you um, are applying for a mortgage and you've never owned a home in the past, which African-Americans applying for a mortgage are more likely to be first-time homebuyers, so not have a mortgage history, payment, a mortgage payment history to, to factor into their credit score, but they've likely been renters their whole life. If you've been a renter your whole life, paid your rent on time, never missed a utility bill payment or a rent payment, that faithful financial history also is not factored into a credit score. So uh, it, again, uh, this leads to the racially disparate effect of the credit scoring system, where about, I think it's two-thirds of African Americans don't have a credit score to speak of, because they just don't have the kind of financial history that goes into that system, versus one-third of whites. And of those with a credit score, over half of whites have a credit score high enough to qualify them for a mortgage versus a quarter of African Americans. This isn't because African Americans are less creditworthy than whites, it's because of this system that factors, that only really counts for the types of financial history that whites have versus African Americans. Now, there's a lot that can be done about this. There's talk on the federal level of, of starting to count rental payment history into the credit scoring system, and there's, been, there's some pilot programs started on the federal level to do that. But I'll, I'll just add that that pilot program came after 15 years of conversations about this. So again, if we're waiting for the federal government to make the changes we need, we're going to be waiting a long time. Um, and we can, in the meantime, take action on the local level. So banks locally, local banks, credit unions, financial institutions can adjust their credit scoring algorithms internally to start to count rental payment history. And that goes a long way to opening up mortgage um, accessibility and home ownership opportunities for African Americans. It's something we could do locally, pressuring our local banks to do this. And we give some examples in just action of communities that have done that. So I will 
wrap up, and I think I'm at time. I'm a little over time. I apologize. Thanks for sticking with me. But I'll just wrap up by saying that, um, as I hope has come across by me just scratching the surface of the examples that we talk about in Just Action, and as I hope you'll see if you read the book, that this, this issue of segregation, it feels overwhelming, it feels intractable, it might feel like it's just the way our country is and there's little I, I personally can do about it, but there's actually so much that we can do um, and there's a lot being done all across the country. Every example of a policy we talk about in Just Action comes with an example of a community that's implementing that policy. So there's a lot happening here and elsewhere all across the country. And so it's just time for us to get involved and to start um, pushing for these changes and enacting these, these changes locally. It sort of matters very little where we get started, but just that we get started. So there's a lot happening here that you can plug into right away to help push this issue forward um, in your own city. So thank you so much for listening. I'll be um, in the back for a little bit if there are questions that I'm sorry I didn't have time to get to, but thanks so much for coming and um, I appreciate it. Good luck. <laughs>